Today on Superhero Ethics, we are talking about Star Trek Picard with two special guests, both of whom have been podcast heroes of mine, and I'm really excited to have them be part of this conversation. Let me also say that as we discuss Star Trek Picard, we're going to be discussing the show in its entirety with spoilers for pretty much everything that's happened this season, as well as pretty much anything else that's happened in a Star Trek show. So if you don't want to be spoiled, um, go watch Picard. It is We talk about some frustrations we have with it uh, on this episode, but it is a very good show for the most part. So just wanted to give you that spoiler warning in case you do want to um, watch it now um, and then hit hit pause and then come back to this uh, in a couple days or a couple weeks once you're fully caught up. All that and more right after this commercial break that we have no control over. If you've been a long-time listener to this show, you've heard me talk about uh, a couple of things that have inspired me. One, you've probably heard me talk about how my mother had me watching Star Trek at an early age, and then she and I would sit and talk about the the episodes and the the kind of questions it raised and how that really kind of shaped my whole approach to media. And you've probably heard me talk about um, podcasts like the MCU cast and DC on screen uh, and the Star Trek universe podcast and how they really helped kind of uh, inspire me and and to get this podcast started and to, to take it in the directions it has been. Uh, well, I'm excited because this week we're bringing all that together. Um, we are talking today about the Star Trek Picard, the new Star Trek show that aired on CBS and I believe is on Netflix now. Um, and we're going to talk some of those questions. And my two guests are uh, Matthew Carroll and David C. Robertson uh, of those uh, two podcasts, respectively. So let me give them a chance to introduce both themselves and probably correct my pronunciation of their name. Matt, how are you doing today? It's Matthew, Matthew. It's Matt. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I give him stuff all the time for calling me Matt. I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Excited to be here. Excited to talk about Picard because we don't do enough of that. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, always. And to specifically get into the ethics of it because that's a different lens, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and just to say a word about where, where you're coming from in terms of the other podcasts you do. Oh, all kinds of them. Um, the, the most, most applicable to this discussion is the Star Trek Universe podcast, but I also do the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, as well as the Matthew Carroll podcast, and a bunch of other kind of one-off things, like we the Orville Universe podcast together. Uh, me and uh, Matthew S. Fox here have been doing the Bingers Assemble episodes for Altered Carbon lately, so a lot of things going on. Uh, Stranded Panda, strandedpanda.com, you can check out where a lot yep. of our shows are. I've talked about Strand and Panda and this podcast being a part of it. Uh, Matthew uh, uh, and, and Dave are, are two of the kind of original um, podcast hosts that helped put that together. So Dave, uh, want to say hello and tell us a little bit about where you're coming from. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm uh, David C. Robertson. Robertson. No, no T, no <laughs> I-N. No. <laughs> um, I am from DC on screen where we talk about the DC universe on film and television. I'm from uh, the Star Trek Universe podcast with Matt. Uh, Matt and I have been talking about Star Trek since we were like five. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. And um, I've just started a, a new podcast called Breaking Bond. And uh, my wife and I have never really watched any of the James Bond movies. So we are sitting down and, and checking those out and talking about them. And uh, we've done three episodes. Nice. And I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. Cool. Are you starting from the beginning and going through in chronological order? Uh, we are. We started at the 1954 live adaptation of Casino Royale with Barry Nelson as James Bond. Oh, okay. That was such a Dave way to start, by the way. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I listened to that episode and I was like, what, what are you doing? You're watching some weird grainy black and white YouTube video of a, of a, of a live TV play instead of starting with Dr. No, come on, do this as a bonus later. Come on. <laughs> if we're going to go to the original, we're going to go to the original. Peter Lorre was the villain. <laughs> that does sound good. I'll, I, I want to watch that movie and listen to that. Um, and I, I didn't realize that, that you guys have actually been, um, friends that long and talking about Trek that long. Um, so let me, yeah, just ask, yeah. let me just start there. For both of you, what is it that kind of pulls you in about Trek? What, what, what's made you love it? Made you want to, uh, keep talking about it for, um, you know, however many decades that is. It's a really good question. Uh, Dave, for you, it's sort of inborn. Like you were raised on the stuff. I, I kind of was, I was, I was like six or seven years old. My parents were watching, uh, the next generation and I don't even understand why. Cause they're n- in no way nerdy. <laughs> And in no way uh, Star Trek fans, really. Uh, but for some reason, they watched it every week. I guess my dad kind of liked genre stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got it. You know, I, I basically I hated it. I was like, why are we watching this boring show? But then slowly I got to where I really loved uh, the Geordi and Data relationship. <laughs> and yeah. Data in general, I think. And uh, that slowly kind of like opened me up to it. And then met da- me and Dave went to church together. We, yeah, we met when we were five or six years old. And, uh, you know, it was something that we could talk to talk about at church. And so he introduced me to the original series and all the other stuff, uh, over the years. And so now we've been having this conversation for 30 years, um, about as, as each one of these series came out. Uh, I mean, re- literally like almost the very beginning of TNG, we were, you know, five and six years old watching that. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, we've, we've done a strange dance of pulling each other back in over the years. That's true. I can see because, that. <laughs> because like I would grab it and be like, Hey, original series. And then a few, Weeks or years later or whatever, he'd be like, dude, are you watching DS9? No, I got out of it. No, watch it, watch it, watch it. <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, he went off to co- – well, we both went off to college and then I was like, dude, are you watching Enterprise? No. Here, I've got tapes. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, But yeah, no, I've been watching it since like I was born into it. Like I was – my parents would watch – and my parents aren't nerdy either, but they would watch the original series. And um, it wasn't any great ethical reason that I was – sucked in at that age or anything. I just liked Starship. I like, I like enterprise in space. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I liked Mr. Spock and I liked bones, you know, like I, I liked those characters, those very standout, uh, archetypes. I've, I've obviously come to, uh, appreciate the, the allegories, but really I just, I, I like Star Trek. I just like, I, they could do whatever. I'm, I'm not beholden to any kind of Roddenberry ideal. I'm just like, yeah, I just want good stories. And, uh, my, my mother would watch, watch yeah. some of TNG with me and, and she kind of used it almost as a history lesson. Cause she loved to talk about the idea of, you know, she loved Roddenberry, but then thought that a lot of Roddenberry's ideas wouldn't work today. And, mm-hmm. and when I would ask, because she was very much a flower child, and when I asked her about the 60s, she would often say, the best way to understand the hope of the 60s is to watch the original Star Trek and then contrast that with watching something like some of the more modern Star Treks, um, which I thought was such an interesting insight in terms of talking about how, you know, Roddenberry's ideas made so much sense in the 60s. Um, and, and, you know, but then with some of the more recent series, having a little more interpersonal conflict and a little more, uh, um, you know, less quite full utopianism kind of made more sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So w- w- at what point would she say that? Cause I'm, it, it makes me curious. Cause what point did she think, did she think T and G is that what she was talking about uh, at that point? Or is this later, even later than that? I think a little bit TNG, but mostly more like the DS nine 
Uh, and then okay. some of the movies and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. DS9 is definitely the, you know, the, the Federation is not the good guys. I think that's the only show that the Federation isn't really the good guys. It's good people in the Federation, but there's a lot of other characters. The thing about the original series, though, is that I don't think it follows Gene Roddenberry's quote unquote vision because he hadn't had it yet. Huh. Um, I feel like when you watch the original series, there's always that problematic, uh, Commodore or Admiral or whatever you want to call him, who are like, no, Kirk, you're going to do this thing that I want you to do. And he's like, nope, right. but the moral imperative says to do this. <laughs> There's always that guy. There's lots of like weird racism from Bones about Spock. There's, uh, you know, stuff like the guy in, in Balance of Terror who's like saying that Spock is a traitor because he looks like a Romulan and Kirk says, you know, you keep prejudice in your quarters, mister. There's lots of interpersonal conflict mm, on the original true. series. Um, so I, I just kind of always, uh, call horse hockey on the, the Roddenberry ideal mm-hmm. as far as the original series is concerned. Well, you also have to judge it based on the time period it's in and like, well, the very fact that a human being on a Federation starship serving in the Federation would have racism, right? Would is totally antithetical to what Gene preaches, right? Right, or what right, he right. preached later on before his death. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It's kind of like he. I, I often think of the Gene Roddenberry thing as he slowly sort of believed his own mythos of what mm-hmm. he built, and yeah. obviously it's a hopeful future because we've solved disease and scarcity and all of that. It's a post-scarcity society, sort of. But you know, trouble with tribbles, they had to get that uh, quadratricale. <laughs> To those colonists, you know they. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but they had they had it. Is that's a transportation issue, not a uh, scarcity issue. Like in a post scarcity society, you still have issues of getting it to the people. But there was an organization yeah. who is designed to get it to those people. You know, that's the whole thing. And certainly, I think there's always been a tension between what Roddenberry's ideal ideal was and where that came out, what the network would let them get away with, and also as I think just always happens, like you know. What, what your understanding of hope is based on that, you know, particular point in time. Like, I think in a lot of ways, Roddenberry probably thought that what he was creating was a world of, you know, complete, you know, gender and sexual freedom in terms of like that women could have powerful roles in Starfleet. They'd all be walking around in tiny skirts and Kirk would be romancing all of them. Right. <laughs> but, you know, by the standards of the day, that was that was what it could go for. It's very woke mm-hmm. by the standards of the day. It yeah. definitely pushed boundaries for its time, but it is, you know, it has its problematic areas <laughs> as well. Like, like any piece of media, I think. Sure. Um, absolutely. Well, and so let me turn it to Star Trek. So given that what you guys like about Star Trek, and I, I know I, I heard some of this on your on the Star Trek Universe podcast and on your lead up to Picard, but I'd love to talk about it here. What were the things you were most excited about seeing in Picard? And, and how do you kind of feel like the show paid off those hopes? We all have problems with the last episode of Picard. Um, you guys did a great episode on that that I'm sure I'll, I'll put up a link to. But not to get just too stuck on that, but but although it's a part of the show, but just kind of like, what what were some topics to see explored or character moments you were hoping for that you either did or didn't get this with this season of Picard? For me, the biggest thing that I didn't get and that I was the most – it was the thing I was most excited for and it was the thing I didn't get. And so it is is my biggest disappointment with the show – uh, and it's exactly what we've been talking about. Um, I think that uh, in the next generation era of Trek, particularly the next generation and Voyager, um, and probably and, and less so on Enterprise and not at all on DS9, uh, they did have this view of the Federation that they're sort of 
there's no there's no friction between them. You know, the the, the right. people on the ships work together, and there's and and they're kind of this perfect society, and they're sort of proselytizing their version of culture to the rest of the galaxy. And I don't really right. love that storyline. I, I much prefer a complex. A group of people trying to do good and they're struggling with what is right and wrong. Like that's what I like, and I think they do that more in different versions of Trek. Um, and and when I saw all the stuff about the synth ban and I saw that coming, and I saw the, I thought we were going to get a really good complex story about the Federation really turning its back. Yeah, on a form of life, and we did get that, but it turned out it was an evil plan of 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 a cabal of Romulan people and then that really undercut what i really wanted out of it which i would have much rather it just be genuine fear of people causing this because i think that's more of a real story um yeah and and i just didn't i thought the whole jat vosh conceit really weakened what i wanted the show to be not to uh, uh dive into the uh, the other star type fandom but um i've i've often said as a star wars fan that one of my least favorite moments in the entire media work of Star Wars, it comes in the the second of the prequel movies when it's revealed that Count Dooku has the whole time actually been working for the Emperor. Um, because yeah, like I, I am so much more interested in a story where different people all have different motivations that seem like the right idea to them, but it's causing this like, three, four, five way conflict. And so I, I had that mm-hmm. same moment towards the end of a card of when we found out that actually just everything was being motivated by this one driving force and it was really coming down to just two sides. It, it made it a lot more simplistic than I had hoped. Talking about ethics and like the, for me, this is sort of meta ethics, but it's like for me presenting shows where you always have a good and a bad guy and having one team kind of always be the good guys, which in, in the most of the history of Trek, that is the Federation. It simplifies mm-hmm. things to the point where you can put yourself in the shoes of the protagonist and go, good guys are good and I am one of them. You know what I mean? And like, right. I think self analysis is incredibly important. And when you're looking at these, uh, and this show, if it would have been, Hey, what are we doing as a, as a world and as a nation that we've lost our way? Like that, that's what I thought they were the story they were trying to tell. And instead it yeah. kind of just simplified it. And I, that from a meta ethics point of view, I want, I wanted the show to really try to go there and, and explore those uh, questions of fear. Yeah, I think I think the the original series, the Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, they've all done a, a better job in a lot yeah. of ways of presenting uh, situations where yes, the Federation is are the good guys until the captain has to stand up to the bureaucracy of it all. Yeah, um, I think they really dropped the ball uh, dropped the ball on, on Picard here, but. Um, the thing I was most excited for, and I didn't even know I was until I saw that first trailer, was Seven of Nine. Because yeah. I was like, yes, finally we're going to get some kind of character development for Seven of Nine. <laughs> yes. And it doesn't involve Jakote in any way, shape, or form. You know what? I wouldn't mind if it did, just okay. as long as it made sense. That's fair. Don't just spring it on me. I can't. Yeah. I cannot believe that they did it again to her with Raffi. I know. Just cannot and believe that was, it. <laughs> That was like theirs and the writers, like that was their suggestion too. It was like Jerry Ryan was like, I think we had like a moment of, of chemistry in this episode. And the writers were like, us too. Yeah. It feels like a meta joke. It does. They're like, hey, you hated when we did it last time. Here it is again. That should be like, we had this one moment of chemistry. 
So how about that be a theme for season two? Is this long drawn out? Will they, won't they plot line, you know, not just like, Oh look, they're, they're together. But it, yeah, I, it looks, yeah, it looks like they are, they are, there's no will they, won't they, they are, yeah. they are. And, uh, the difference though, of course, is that we have a second season coming. <laughs> yeah, that's if true. The coronavirus ever goes away. <laughs> and it is interesting to me also the two things you're bringing up because I think they're kind of connected because to me, this is the kind of thing when I think about, when I think about kind of ethical and moral questions on this show is <clears throat> when instead of it being good guys and bad guys, it's different people with different motivations and, and that they're all the good guys in their own heads. Um, and Dave, I think, I think you're both right. We get that in almost every series. To me, the, the pinnacle of that um, is DS9, you know, where you have often the Federation has their agenda and the Bajorans have their agenda and, and neither one of them are bad. They're just not the same. Yeah. And Cisco sometimes is one side or the other. And the wormhole aliens are one side or the other. And, and even people like the Cardassians in, in um, characters like Garrick and, and even like the Ferengi and characters like Quark, they're not bad or good. They're just people who have their agendas. Um, and, and that's, I think, what I really wanted out of the season of Star Trek. The idea that, like, you know, the androids are doing this and the Romulans are doing this and the Federation is doing this. Um, w- one of the things I think I was most disappointed with um, was the Romulan storyline. Because I, what I thought we were going to get, I'm wondering if you guys also thought we were going in this direction, but I... I thought this from the trailers and especially from episodes one and somewhat episode two was that we were going to get the Federation has long been the the diehard enemy of the Romulans and vice versa. The Romulans have gone through this horrible catastrophe and the Federation didn't really respond the way they should have. And now everyone's having to adjust to this totally new world where the Romulans aren't warlike and crazy because they can't be anymore. But they're still holding some grudges against the Federation, and the Federation has to kind of let go of its fear and resentment about the Romulans because the Romulans are decimated. Did you guys get that sense, or was I just all headcanoning that from the trailers? Well, less than – I don't know if it's the trailers, but the episode where he goes to Elnor's planet, Absolute Candor, um, and meets a lot of Romulans, I really got that sense. I was like, oh, he – yeah, it, 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 they very much set up exactly what you're talking about, but then mm-hmm. in the end, it's just a a Romulan fleet versus a Federation fleet, good guys versus yeah. bad guys. And can we? I mean, not to jump too far into this to a completely different topic, but like that's one of the biggest ethical problems in the series for me that it it, it isn't even really explored. You you just assume Picard is right because he's Picard, and, and at least the show seems to presume that Picard is right because he's Picard. Mm-hmm. about pretty much everything in this show um well his name is the show yeah no no but, but that doesn't mean he has to be right you know <laughs> I, I mean have you ever seen dexter dexter's name is the show and he's <laughs> the protagonist he's not the hero but yeah i, I hear what you're saying so so well, the biggest problem for me is in the end of the story the Jatvash have been on this mission to stop the androids from destroying all life which is a valuable mission if it's true and then basically right. they find out it is true. This mythology they believe in is true. And the beings that are down there are about to destroy all life in the galaxy, in the, in the universe, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then Picard fights for those androids, which I like, you know, is a beautiful sentiment. And it's, 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 it really is. Yeah. And it's, it's, you put it well, Dave, we we're talking about this in the chat. Um, it's, it's the story of just like, um, sort of practicality versus, um, 
if you help me out uh, with the word. Yeah, it was uh, the principle versus the greater good. Right, maybe? right, right. Yeah. Something like that. This is something that we talk about all the time with like Section 31 and stuff like that, making those hard decisions. But I got to say, like, the idea that Picard didn't even think maybe we should destroy these these androids like they are about to destroy us and maybe i shouldn't stop yeah. the romulans like that's a big decision to make for the universe but if picard you know if picard thought that way he would be just as guilty as the federation was with like maybe we should let the romulans die they've always been a threat Yes. I didn't think the writers were always presenting Picard as a hero. I think they were trying to show him as, as flawed in some ways. They just didn't do a very good job of it all the time. We've been ragging on the show a lot, and I, I do want to say I love the show for the most part. There's just some real problems towards the end and how it wraps up certain questions. Um, and I want to go back to the thing about um, the, the Jat Vash, but just on Picard, I, to me, I think what it shows more than anything is his arrogance. Because I think he doesn't see it as... I'm choosing the androids over the universe. I think he sees it as, and it's almost a very kind of, this is a very core Star Trek idea. You know, he thinks if I use logic and reason and my big, big brain, I can convince the androids not to destroy the universe. And that's better than killing the androids because either way we will not destroy the universe, but my way is safer and better for everyone. Um, and, and it's, it's that, that kind of hubris of, I, I think it never occurs to him that he might not convince them, and thus, because of his efforts, the whole universe might get destroyed. Yeah. Like, this this would be a way you could solve that in a storytelling perspective. You have him say, I, I want you to stop, and I can't stop this fleet, but I am going to die for you. I'm going to, like, go... Try try my best to save you because I believe in you. And if my death, you mm-hmm. know... Does, but instead, he, like actually tries to stop the Romulans from stopping them. And it's like, I don't know that he should stop them. Like they, they're trying yeah. to stop. I mean, needs of the many, you know, like needs of the many in this case is like a lot. The, 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 and, and I know, I know we can have that discussion about like, yeah, but the, that'd have to be the androids choice. But if the androids have banded together to destroy all life, which at that point they had, you know, you kind of have to make that call. It, there's a weird way in which it seems like Patrick Stewart is being typecast because the idea of I want to care for this incredibly powerful being or group of beings who you all want to kill because they have the potential to be incredibly destructive, but mm-hmm. I think that I can save them and thus make them not destructive. I mean, that's Professor X just as much as it is Picard, isn't it? For sure. And and yeah, and I honestly have a lot of thoughts about X Men <laughs> and how ridiculous it is that you know they're like. Where we are as an audience supposed to go? Yeah, they shouldn't be registered. They t- they should totally be registered. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm very much uh, I'm Team Tony and Magneto. Uh, we have an episode actually coming out on a, a, a ethical villainy, uh, which I talk about why I think Magneto is more the hero than Professor X. So I'm with you there. I mean, you wouldn't want to be a mutant and registered in like a Trump administration, but you know, normally, yeah. hey, you know, <laughs> these are crazy running running around weapons here yeah running muck if i'm going into a casino i want to know who can read my mind and who can affect the odds you know that's that mm-hmm. seems fair the, the thing for me is i just i wish i wish that in these stories when x or picard or anyone else played by patrick stewart would like be confronted with that he would treat it as a choice you know like he would realize mm. oh this person i the government wants to stop them 
but I I don't think they should, or I think they should be given a choice. Uh, he should he should have to weigh that in his mind, or we should see him have to make that decision instead of just being like, yeah. no, all principle, no greater good. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I'm, I'm more of a Cisco man. <laughs> Here it seems like the show, the writers almost fall into the same uh, kind of ethical problem they were starting to say the Federation does because it kind of feels like towards the end, the reason why Picard thinks, of course, I have to side with the androids is because it's against the Romulans and the Rom- Romulans are the enemy. Um, I-, I think that was the thing that I, w- I-, I was really disappointed by, especially was we, s- we start out with so much like Picard is on the side of the Romulans. Picard is able to empathize with the Romulans. Um, and so to have that just be switched, I thought was interesting. Um, yeah, I agree. Let, let me go back mm-hmm. to the idea though, of that the Romulans were right, because the, the one thing I would push back on there, because here I thought the show did something really interesting is do you think it's that the Romulans were right that the androids are this incredible terror? Or is it something of a self-fulfilling prophecy? Because it does seem like that the reason why the androids want to use this power is because the Romulans are now coming to kill them. So that there's kind of a chicken and the egg thing there, isn't there? Well, sure. The mm. reason the androids want to kill is because they're is because organic life wants to extinguish them. Like that's the whole point. But they also – they had these visions. They had the admonition. Um, they definitely could have gone to the androids and said, hey, we found this admonition, but we don't plan to do that. But I think that the part, part of the whole thing is, is you also don't get a sense that the Romulans necessarily even had a choice in the matter because they found this admonition that drove a lot of them nuts and made them fear and hate androids. So even from like a there's a bad guy in this – even the bad guys are being controlled by a thing they can't possibly understand because it wasn't meant for them. So mm-hmm. I don't know. There, there's like it's 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 layer upon layer of lack of ethics or lack of any sort of decision making happening. It's lack of agency. I yes, think is a big that's, part that's of this the show. Mm-hmm. And and it's funny because in some ways they really explore that in great ways. Um, I thought one of my favorite parts of the show, and Dave, I'm wondering if you agree with this because it involves the character you talk about, is when Seven is confronted with whether or not she will take control of the Borg Collective. Um, because she's in a situation where they're going to die if she doesn't do this, and presumably so will the other drones. But it also seems like it goes so against everything she believes in to kind of re-enslave or, or you know, reconnect these Borg to the, to the Collective especially because you know I, what I think is one of my favorite moments when Elnor says like, well, but can't you just turn it off when you need to? And she says, the problem is that I won't want to, and they won't want me to either. Um, what was kind of your take on, on that scene and, and the decision she makes there? Uh, my take is basically that sometimes you have to do, and this is, this is, seems to be sevens. Uh, this is, this is where seven lives now. You have to do unsavory things for the betterment of the universe. Right. And I've, I'm of the belief that Seven never quite escaped from slavery on mm-hmm. Voyager. Like, she was excised from the Borg Collective, where she was a slave to the hive mind, and then became a crew member of Voyager, where she was slave to the hive mind. To <laughs> The Maquis didn't escape, but why would she? Um, you step aboard Voyager for some reason. You're a part of the. You're a part of the Federation. You're Starfleet, and you have to do everything by the book. You have to do what Janeway says. Right. 
So I think it's really interesting to actually see her pushing forward. And I would maybe I did, did I miss something? Did they did she ever say why she stopped being a part of Starfleet after Voyager? She said the same thing that um basically Picard, she felt the same way Picard did about the Federation. It was the Romulans. Yeah, yeah, well, not just the Romulans, but they're the Fenris Rangers, that whole area right. of space, the Fenris they, area or whatever. Right. The Fenris sector. Yeah, they abandoned it. Yeah, yeah. I think that was. I think that, that. I think that area is supposed to be the neutral zone. What we knew of as the mm-hmm. neutral zone before, and they mm-hmm. they abandoned it. And so now there's just a bunch of like crime lords and like um, sort of despots, sort of taking control of various planets, and not really. There's not an overarching government from either side, and right. so it's 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 become sort of the wild west. See, that's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I I love seeing characters break out of the Federation, even when it's just on like the normal series, and you know something happens. They're like, "Nope, that shit ain't right." Yeah, I'm doing this instead. And I I love that that's where Seven lives now. I love it that she killed her ex, <laughs> and who wouldn't? I mean, the, the way she, yeah, the way she killed Icheb, the way she. Has just been torturing and oh my god, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. put her out, take her out of her misery. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love Seven's development. I think, I think you make a really good observation there about how I think this is something very relatable. I mean, in our own world, there's a lot of evidence that if you grow up in in you know kind of very rigid societies, like you know certainly cults, but even things that are not quite like that, but we're still like. You're given very rigid, obey this authority figure, these are the rules, never break the rules. Mm-hmm. You can get freed of that, and people often gravitate back to something like that. And I, I, I never thought about it that way, but you're right, that Janeway becomes her kind of new Borg queen in a lot of ways. And, and so let me ask you this. Would you, would, does this make, comparison make sense to you, especially as our DC guy? Um, where she winds up is she sort of feels like she wants law and order, but the people who should be doing Law and Order, the Federation, aren't doing it. So she's going to kind of do this paradox of she's going to go outside of the realm of Law and Order in order to kind of instill her own version of it. Yeah. They call her a vigilante. Right. Well, yeah. as you say, to me, that feels very Batman. Yeah, Like for the, sure. His idea of, like, because the Gotham City Police can't do this, I hey, have to do this anyway. I, I, think it's, I think it's a closer approximation to say she's more like the Punisher. Mm, yeah. Okay. Especially with the killing of Jazel, and uh, she kills yeah, multiple <laughs> people needlessly in 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 the season, and that's her. Uh, she she's 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 a murderer, uh, and it's but she murders for good, and that's that's the question: or can you be that? And so, and she's struggling with that, and that entire episode where she decides whether to go kill Jazel or not. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I loved it. I loved it, and yeah. I you know I'm not one to watch a character be like, well, I can't like this character anymore because they did a thing I disagree with. Well, I no, this person had reasons to do it. And I like to see that play out, you know, like I don't have a problem with spike becoming a good guy in Buffy. Yeah. He is a serial killer to be clear. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but he was redeemed in some way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. and it, it's that story of, you know, that, 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 that people are complex, that people aren't just mustache twirlers or, or heroes. To me, I, I love when a character does something I disagree with, but I understand why the character would do it. It's when the character does something that feels out of place for the character that it, that it feels weird to me. Yeah. So let's just go back to the, the character Picard himself then. What, what, 
obviously we're not really thrilled with how he ends up, but what did you think of the, the journey that he takes the rest of the show? Like, um, just starting with his decision to kind of leave Starfleet. Um, I, I forget what, uh, the person who he travels with all the time in, in this, in this season, I can't remember her name. Um, Raffi. Raffi. She's obviously very angry at him for, for giving up, as she says. But what, what, what's your take mm-hmm. on his decision to leave Starfleet when he does? They called his bluff, man. He had to go. Yeah. Like, he couldn't just be like, I'm just kidding. I'm put, I'm going to put my badge back on. He can't show up Monday and act like nothing ever happened. Yeah, know? I disagree with that, though. I think he could have done something outside. He, if this were Kirk, he would have said, screw you. I'm going and stealing a Klingon warbird and going to go save as many people <laughs> as I can, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he would have. You're right. And that, that's what I wanted out of that. I think that's what Raffi wanted out of Picard. Raffi was like, you, right. you, you, you just stopped. You, you, they, they, they called your bluff and you just stopped. And right. yeah. And I think Picard was tired and he, everything he believed in wasn't working. That goes back to what I was saying earlier is like, Kirk was used to that. Kirk right. was like, dude, Federation's going to pick the wrong side like nine times out of 10, they're going to choose the wrong course of action. <laughs> I'm going to do this and they'll demote me, but it's what I want anyway. You know, like, but Picard is so hung up on an ideal that he got his feelings hurt. He got his feelings hurt and he decided to quit. Like if they're not going to be the, it, that's what he says in that interview is he's like, it was no longer Starfleet. Yeah. Well, yeah. You're, and look at, you're breaking down over it still. Yeah. And you're no yeah. longer Starfleet now. You chose, like, you could have kept the ideal alive. And that's very much what, uh, Seven is doing. Seven is doing, mm-hmm. they have a conversation in his little, uh, chateau. Uh, he says, Oh, it's, I don't really think vigilantism is the way to go. You should trust the law. And she's like, there is no law here. Like yeah. I, I am the only, I am the only protection these people have, and I would even push back. Like you talked about her wanting to be the law, I think she wants to be. She just wants to protect people. She wants to protect people in in the best mm. way she can. It doesn't matter if it's law, and I think that goes with um, thing characters like the Punisher or Batman or whoever. They don't as much care about the law. They care about just saving people, the good of people over. Uh, any sort of law, which is hard, yeah. is hard to navigate because then you're breaking laws to try to do the right thing. But as a society, we've agreed these laws are what's best. And so what, what, what gives you the right to do that? Um, you know, and that's, that makes for interesting storytelling. I am. I just want to reiterate. I am so happy with where seven ultimately winds up or where we find her in this series, because it's true, man. She was taken as a little girl. She basically is a combination of Batman and Punisher. Like yeah. she was taken, she was, you know, indoctrinated into a cult taken out of that cult and then put into another cult, <laughs> the yeah. cult of the of Starfleet. And now she's just like, no, I'm my own person. That's why it's so great that she becomes the board queen for just that short amount of time where she's like, no, okay, I'm taking control of all these people. And we're going to do what's right for just a second. Right. And we're all going to suffer the consequences, but it's what's right. It, I know we're talking ethics here, but just from a storytelling perspective, that episode is one of my least favorite because that plot line is relegated to about five minutes of screen time because they're telling the story of the ship and like the, the crew members sort of coalescing and telling the truth. And you find out about, um, Rios's past and you find out about the, 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 what happened to his captain and all that stuff. So they're telling that's, that's all kind of the a story and it's very much relegated to a B story, but for seven Taking control, unless she does this all the time, which I don't think so, like that should have been to me, like 
that should have been a season finale on a seven of nine show if she has to take control of a Borg cube. Yeah. And then for all of those Borg to die while connected to her, like that seems like it would be horrible and painful and like it would really scar her. And, and then she does scream and she does like bandy about whether she should take control or not, but she doesn't do it for long. It just felt like that should have been a huge deal in Seven's life. And it's a B plot on someone else's show. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. If they never bring it up again and nothing ever happens of it, I'm going to agree with you 100%. Right. Maybe she'll have some, some, uh, some sort of psychological scarring over it is what you're saying. It certainly seems like they are setting something up. Yeah. They, it seems like they, they, they set up, they had some, you know, little clues that it screwed with her, uh, that she didn't want to do it in the first place. The voice of the Borg says Annika has work to do. Absolutely. Yeah. There is that. I'm not sure if that's the, like the global voice of the Borg having plans for Annika or Annika as the Borg letting the Borg know that she needs to release now because she has other stuff to do. She can't stay, you know? I don't know yeah. what that's supposed to mean. Is, is that like some sort of Borg omniscience? Or is that like her telling the Borg, I have things to do, I can't stay here? I, I truly don't believe that they knew what they were doing. I don't think they... <laughs> <laughs> I think they were just like, hey, you know what would be cool? If she says Annika still has work to do. What does that yeah. mean? I don't know. We can explore that later. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid you're right there. I'm hoping it's not the case, but I'm afraid you're right. And it, It's a mystery box. One thing I've heard is that the next season is going to be more of an ensemble show. And like this season was very much Picard and Picard's journey. And that the next season will be a little bit broader in that, um, which I would certainly enjoy. And I think seeing Seven Store Explored... Uh, one thing I do want to say, though, is um, we, we, we on this podcast, we have a sort of ethical moral framework. But, you know, part of why I wanted to invite you guys on was because I think you two talk about ethics and morality on your Picard and, and your other TV uh, podcasts far more than you think. Because I kind of think that these – and so, Matt, when you said let's stop talking about ethics and talk about the story, to me there's ethical ramifications of everything we're just talking about. Sure, no, no. I think there's a lot of ethical ramifications of what happened, and like, there's a lot of discussion to be had about what happened. I, I think that I think that me complaining about uh, the weight they gave it in the story uh, does feel a little just petty, fanny. <laughs> it doesn't feel like I'm discussing ethics. It feels like I'm just complaining, which I. That's why I'm like, I know this isn't where we do where we do this, but I can't help it. I really hated that part. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no i feel the same way when we go on about stuff like that yeah i know i know let me offer let me offer this perspective and maybe this is my just justifying the fact that this is half an ethics podcast and half a fan podcast but i think it makes sense i think the way shows raise interesting ethical questions and then don't resolve them or choose not to further address them i think is itself an ethical issue um and so i think that's why everything we're talking about in terms of what are the questions that the show raises but then doesn't explore? It makes for bad storytelling, but it's also interesting from that perspective of what are the, what are the issues a, a story is or isn't willing to wrestle with. Yeah. Here, here's the thing, though. I don't, I don't know who listens to Arrow on this show or who watches Arrow on this show or who watched Arrow, I should say. It's been a while. But there is, there is an episode. There, there, there is an episode where Oliver Queen is the mayor of Star City, and he is – they are trying to figure out how to pass a, a gun law. Oh, good. exactly what you're talking about. Yep. And they never come down. They never actually say how they resolve it. It's just, we're going to sit in a room and we're going to work until we figure out our gun law 
for this city. <laughs> that's that's how they yep. end these episodes. I do vaguely remember this episode. And it's like Oliver is gonna have a thing that he says, you know, and Oliver's gonna make a thing, and we're gonna come together on this. No more, you know. No more arguing over this. We're gonna figure it out. <laughs> and I know what they were going for. They were going for we will please everybody. But even Guggenheim has come out and said like, mm, no, we should have come down on one way or the other on this thing. <laughs> like we we should have had this happen. I will say I did like in that storyline how they allowed different characters to have different perspectives on it, and they did allow them to express the different sides of the argument. Um, so I, I and, and if they're trying to solve the issue between all those characters, it's mm-hmm. kind of impossible to do because it's in our world. It's it's proved right. impossible thus far. So it's I, yeah. I, I can't blame the show for trying something like that. But it it, it, it right. does feel like a cop out to be like, now we're going to go solve it off screen. <laughs> I feel like a lot of shows try to do something similar where they're like, we are raising lots of ethical problems here or ethical questions at the very least. And, you know, no one has ever been able to, like, really suss out what the correct thing to do is. Everyone has different opinions in the real world. So for us to force that upon any of our viewers, we're going to make people angry. Maybe it's better. Maybe it's it makes us a stronger show. Maybe it's better writing if we let them uh, come up with what they think the the solution is. We make the show a talking point and that way the show lives on in people's heads rent free and we get to move on and not actually solve anything on our own show. Yeah. I, I think it's an interesting balance and I, um, I, I, I'm amused a little bit about this because, um, so Dave, I, I, I watched a lot of arrow. I, I eventually had to give up cause life got so busy, but, uh, and that is your fault. Uh, you, you, your DC podcast got me interested enough in, in arrow to watch it. Um, uh-huh. and I actually, Back when this superhero ethics project was both a blog and a podcast, I, I wrote an article specifically about that episode um, uh, that I will put in the show notes here because I think it, it – it, it, to me, I think I think that what we're getting at here is a really good illustration of – I don't necessarily want a show that gives me answers. And frankly, I've loved a lot of Star Trek that raises questions and, and Matt, as you said, lets different characters offer different perspectives – and it has the characters go in a particular direction, but the show isn't saying they're right or wrong. It's saying this is what the characters choose, and we're, you as the audience would have to figure out how you would choose. And I feel like, um, you know, uh, I think, Matt, it was you and I who were talking about this recently, but I, I recently was brought up for me the episode of Deep Space Nine, where uh, basically Garrick and Sisko are trying to get the Romulans into the war on their side. Mm. And, and, Cisco's face the situation where he basically like helps Garrick assassinate or, or sort of tolerates Garrick assassinating someone. Um, yep. And that to me is a great issue where it's sort of saying like, yeah, this is a hard question. And the show doesn't say Cisco's 100% right. It, it says this is what he has to do. And maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. We're leaving that question open. To me, that's very different than what the Arrow show did, where it was just more like, yeah, there's no real answer. Let's not even bother. You know, that, that felt to me much more like that, that felt more cowardly, I think, than the, um, than the way I think Star Trek has explored it. And where I think Star, I think Picard did that on a lot of good issues. It just didn't do it on some of the key ones that we'd kind of had built up from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And the pale moonlight is such a good episode. Yeah. Oh it really my is. God. It's, it's, it really it, is. I always say it's my favorite. 
uh, Star Trek episode. It's just, it is so complex and interesting. It's, it's just so different, like the way it has the wraparound of Cisco talking throughout it. And just the Garrick is always a fun character to follow along with. And I just love that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so Picard though, uh, going back to what we were saying about the, um, his decision with the Romulans, I, I do feel like he, that that is his moral arc in the show is that it, it, at the start of the show, he's presented as he was faced with this decision and he just kind of backed away. Um, and I like the comment you made about comparing him to Kirk because, to my mind, it it's a great illustration of how that Kirk was always much more of a cowboy. Picard was someone who really believed in the Federation and thought the Federation mostly was going to do the right thing, especially because by the time that that, that happened, he kind of was the Federation. He was the admiral of the, the, the flagship and all this kind of stuff. And then, then the just the person everyone looked to. So I could, I could believe that when, when his ideal in the Federation shattered, it was a lot harder for him versus Kirk, who, like you said, was, eh, it, the Federation's doing something dumb. It's Tuesday. Um, (laughs) even though I don't fully agree with the decision he makes at the end, part of the point is that here he's willing to make a stand where he wasn't at the start of the, at the start of the season. And that, that's kind of his, his arc of that he's kind of getting a redemption. For, for the mistakes mm-hmm. he made at the start. Does that sound fair to you all? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's what they're I going so. for, for sure. And I, I don't know if, I don't know how much, how, <laughs> I, I think one of the problems with Picard might be that as they always uh, champion, they have fans writing the show. Yeah. Mm. But um, I have never looked at, I've never really looked at Picard as like this great big savior. Everyone's like, oh, he's like this like paragon of of ethics, and he's this he's this guy that could just like come in and knows the exact the exact right thing to do. And I I've always kind of seen him a little bit ever since the episode where he's like, yeah, I started buckling down and doing what you know everything I was supposed to do because I was stabbed through the heart when he's telling Wesley in that shuttlecraft. And I was like, mm. oh. You saw your reckless behavior hurt you, and you became a coward. Yeah. So the Federation, their protocols, everything that you follow religiously, everything that's by the book that you adhere to, that's your crutch. Uh, I I think coward might be a little harsh. (laughs) It it does seem harsh. You don't want to think of Picard as a coward, and he's certainly redeemed himself by this point. He's not a coward at this point. I don't think he ever really was a coward. Are you saying he wasn't a coward when he said, you're no longer Starfleet, I'm done, and he didn't help those people? Uh, I wouldn't say coward, no. I I would say that he uh, was petty, and I would say a lot of things about him. I don't don't think he necessarily even, like, uh, considered. He let people die because he was butthurt. Yeah. No, and I I think that's different than cowardice, though. I don't think it is. I think where I would describe him getting to is activist burnout, um, which, you know, I, I, I work in the nonprofit world. And this is something we talk about a lot is that the reason why it's important to do self-care and to not get so invested and, and to really sacrifice all of yourself is because it, it becomes so possible for you to just be so disappointed that you just throw your hands up and say, like, I can't do anymore. To me, it, it keeps going back to his hubris, you know, that he was just so convinced that if he made the right just cause to um, to Starfleet, that they that they would um, shift, and, and in some ways, and I don't know if I'm getting too meta here, and maybe I'm giving the writers far too much credit. I think you could see that in some ways as a brilliant commentary on 
so much of uh, early Star Trek, especially the original series, because that's often the, the biggest conceit is no matter what the alien race or computer logic or demigod that Kirk is talking to, if Kirk uses logic and reason and show and emotion, but if he kind of makes a case to the other side, they will always back down. Um, and, and it seems like, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seems like maybe kind of what they were trying to say is that Picard was very much like that. And, and his world shattered when he realized that didn't always work. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I just, given the Picard, we just saw an insurrection two movies ago or whatever, mm-hmm. where he sees, mm-hmm. Uh, the Federation not doing the right thing and he, you know, causes an insurrection. <laughs> like, I don't know. I guess I just would have seen him. Maybe he, maybe the problem was just too big for him. He didn't think he could solve yeah. it on his own. It's an interesting commentary, I think, on, on where this all started because I was talking about how, for my mother at least, I think for many people, whether or not this was exactly Roddenberry's vision, the original series is all about hope. It's all about the, the hopefulness of the sick, of that technology and science and and will cure all of our problems and for me i feel like picard's quitting is is more than anything it's about him giving up hope Hmm. and Mm -hmm. and that what the season is about is how he finds his hope again um but i find his i I think it's very easy for me to be very critical of picard but i also think i can very much understand it you know i've known like both colleagues and friends of mine but also you know pretty highly placed people who you know, during very difficult, you know, political or economic times have said, like, I, I just can't keep fighting this fight. I, like, I wish Picard would have chosen differently, but I also feel like it, it, it really fits his character. You know, what I think I'm, I'm seeing a, I'm seeing something here, and I think it may be what the difference between these two characters. I think Picard has always been a part of Starfleet and has always he's done the right things for all these years partially out of hubris like he's done the right things because he believed that's who he was whereas someone like seven does the right things despite what she thinks it means about her she has Mm -hmm. left the federation and joined the finris rangers and is killing people because she thinks it's the right thing to do even though it kind of makes her hate herself a little bit whereas picard it's part of his hubris the fact that like he's he believed in the Federation ideal so much, and he believed he was the Federation ideal, that when he sees that, that that's not going to work for him, maybe he's not the person that goes and saves all those people on, on his own. He's the person who believes in the ideal, and when the ideal isn't there, or there's no like you know system to support him, he's not, he's not that guy. I, f- right. I, feel like, I feel like we and the fans tend to look at Picard's character through uh, rose-colored glasses, though. When you look yeah. back at TNG, you, you remember the guy that stood up for data and measure of a man. You don't remember the guy who was like, that's not a person, that's a Borg. Kill it in, in iBorg. Yeah, right. no, for sure. You you know, you don't remember necessarily the first contact guy who was like, you'll be doing them a favor if you just kill them. Yeah. You 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 tend to shy away from the guy in Journey's End who's like, no, this is for the greater good. We're going to take these Native Americans, basically, whatever they <laughs> – off of this planet and give it to the Cardassians and not stand up for them. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, I wish they had mentioned an insurrection as him being like, I made a mistake once. Yeah. I'm not Ooh, going to do yeah. that again. I, Agreed. I, I think that's a very good point, especially because I think um, – and I was kind of thinking about this before when you're talking about where Picard has been and, and how this show is kind of a reaction to the fans. 
the romanticization of the character, the rose-colored glasses, the romanticization of, of the character Picard, I think, has been really strong over the last mm-hmm. 20 years. And I think especially because, and I, I know you guys, I think, are higher on Discovery than I am, um, but, but not even putting aside our personal opinions, I know for an awful lot of fans, Discovery was very disappointing in that it wasn't what they wanted from Trek. Um, and, and I, at least a lot of what I saw when, when Picard first got announced was, oh, thank God we'll have real Trek again instead of Discovery. Um, and, mm-hmm. I, and I don't even get into whether how accurate that is because I think a lot of people could dispute that. But I think because of that, it became we want Picard to be not TNG all over again, but our memory 20 years later of TNG. Um, and, and yeah, that, that gets into all sorts of questions about the writer's responsibility to give the fans what they want versus to be true to the original characters versus, versus all this kind of stuff. I'll, I'll tell you what you get when they do a reunion, when, when writers make a reunion show that caters to the rose colored glasses, we get returned to Mayberry. And you watch it and you go, this doesn't feel right. I don't know what it is. I can't put my hand because the show was never that. Yeah. That's the problem. (laughs) It wasn't just feel good moments with characters, you know, that have no consequence. Right. Which is what Return to Mayberry was. And that's what a lot of like reunion shows wind up doing. that just never feel right. Like if you don't have a story to tell, don't do it. I feel like Picard had a story to tell whether or not we agreed with where it wound up. Now, I love where Picard as a character wound up. I think it was, you know, beautiful. You mean mean dead? Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean – Yeah, I know. It's ha ha ha. But he – I think there's – I think it's great that he winds up as the very thing he fought to – preserve uh, yeah. back in all the way back in measure of a man he fought for data's rights and now he finds that he himself is a synth yeah first of all matt you should know he's not dead he just had his stack resleeved. Oh, um gotcha that's I, right i see i see it's an altered carbon reference for anyone who hasn't seen that show but you know I, I think that's right i do i do love the journey he goes on and where he winds up and i'm um i'm really hoping to see where that gets explored in the next season um mm. And also just going back to what we're talking about with um, Seven of Nine, because you all helped me really put this into even better perspective. One thing I'm thinking about with both Seven and Picard is, uh, I think it was you, Dave, you were talking about the um, how the difference in those two characters and how a lot of it has to do with how they see themselves. Mm-hmm. Part of it for Seven is that she has never been able to, until now, define her own identity. Like, she was taken in by the Borg and and made a part of the Borg, and then leaving the Borg and becoming part of Starfleet are not in any way her choice. She yeah. She's forcibly cut away from the Borg, and then basically forced to, well, you can't just leave the starship, you have to become part of the Federation. And part of what I'm seeing it is, is that Fenris Rangers is the first time where she gets to define for herself who she wants to be, without someone else telling her, this is who you should be. Um and that makes a marked difference to Picard, who's kind of always had to do that, but is now having to wrestle with what's his own image of himself. Yeah. Another thing, uh, and, and you just mentioned some uh, some altered carbon love. Um, we we were I just edited the episode we recorded yesterday, and uh, we talked about this this idea they brought up in altered carbon. So not to no spoilers for altered carbon, just a little, little mention of a concept here. Uh, one of the things they talk about in the last episode is uh, going through hardships helps you understand the hardships of others. Right. 
and then combine that with the character of Bancroft in in a uh, in Altered Carbon, who is a character who has lived a long life of privilege and really only views himself through the lens of how how he sees himself. Like he does good, the good things he does is because he wants to view himself that way. Let's be careful not to spoil Altered Carbon for anyone, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, yeah. I think I think that's all I'm saying about Altered Carbon. Um, but I thought it was an in- interesting parallel to draw between, like, Kovach, ver- Kovach to Seven versus Bancroft to Picard, if that makes sense. Oh, like, yeah. Seven, who has been through a lot of struggles and has seen struggle, and so when she pe- sees people out on the, out on the edge of... Uh, the Fenris area, she feels like she needs to get out there and help them. Whereas Picard has always done these good things out of a view of himself. And once right. his paradigm is destroyed, he kind of recedes and isn't doing the things he could do to help others. Well, and it gets into that same question because, you know, a, a lot of what we talked about on that episode of Altered Carbon was how much it matters with not only just are your own suffering, but are you seeing the suffering from others or are you somewhat protected from that? And for Seven, What's happening out on those planets, I mean, that that's her lived experience. She's seeing that her friends, her their loved ones herself are 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 suffering because of it. Whereas for Picard, like he might think what's happening to the synths is terrible and what's happening to the Romulans is terrible, but it doesn't really touch his life. You know, his his actual day-to-day existence is not in any way affected by those things. He mentally knows about them, but they're not impacting him in the same way that it he kind of has the ability to sort of shut it all off the way if it was actually like, you know, um, directly happening to him, he of course wouldn't be able to. Right. So that's also I think, an interesting twist on the character. It also all kind of ties together when you think about his answer to that question of why didn't you, or why did you leave the Federation? He didn't say because they let a lot of people die. He says, because they weren't the Federation anymore. It's like right. the, the identity of the thing was so important to him. Hmm. Well, he was all tied up in it. Sure, yeah. which is weird after insurrection. Yeah, yeah, I it, it's weird. I I think insurrection is a very bad movie, but it raises some really interesting questions, and it takes characters on really interesting journeys. I think I've always been frustrated that it seemed to have no effect because it seemed like, in some ways, insurrection was as much a you know break with Roddenberry as anything on DS Nine, but then. After insurrection, we're right back to everything's hunky dory with the Federation in a way that made no sense to me. Well, they made it was just like many other Star Trek episodes where it was one admiral yeah. was doing some or a few admirals were doing a bad thing, um, right? And, and and I I I would push back on it being a bad movie. I think it's one of the better of the of the TNG era. I mean, there's only a few, but I do like the I like insurrection. Yeah, I I I have my issues with insurrection. Certainly. Uh, uh, Pulling data back to his to his TNG character and and not exploring his emotions or or where we left him at the end of First Contact, um, I'm like, dude, there were kids on on the Enterprise D. Like, wh- how how are you not familiar with children or playing? Yeah. <laughs> like, you 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 played with every person on that ship. You talked to every person <laughs> on that ship about how to be a human. That is stupid. It's just stupid. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I liked all the stuff about you know learning to live inside of a moment, and I liked mm-hmm. all the the you know the stuff about choosing to to eschew technology um, in in favor of a richer life. It's interesting yeah. how many Star Trek movies are about living in the moment. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's, <laughs> yeah. a, there's a lot of that. It's interesting. Well, well you know, it, generations about living in a moment over and over again. Right. Well, yes, but it was also very much about living in the moment. Like it's, it's very yeah. much about so Tolly and Soren being stuck on the past, and Kirk not not being willing to live in the Nexus, or Picard not being willing to live in the yeah. Nexus. You have that right. great line at the end of Generations where Picard is telling uh, Riker, you know, someone told me that time is a predator that stalks us all our lives, but I rather think of time as a companion that reminds us to cherish each moment. For it won't come again. <laughs> good accent. No, it's yeah, terrible. No, th- th- there's some good things there. Uh, and, and I'll admit, you're very welcome to um, take any opinions I have on Star Trek movies with a huge grain of salt. Because I kind of like Nemesis. Um, which I know makes me very, yeah. very weird. Um, That's rough, man. Um, That's rough. But <laughs> I just think there's some fun parts to it. Um, but but yeah, so getting back to this... Um, We've talked a lot about Picard and, and Seven, and I think we could certainly go much deeper, but I want to cover at least a couple other things before we go too long. Um, so let's talk about the androids themselves. Because um, again here, I feel like we didn't get the story we wanted, but we did get kind of an interesting story still. Um, and let's just kind of start with the, the whole idea of what happened on Mars, because I feel like it raised some really interesting questions, even though it gave us kind of a dumb answer, but but... In just like the first half of the season, when we were wrestling with this idea of um, like, what if androids did rise up because they were enslaved and, and how would we deal with that? Like, what, what was your kind of your, your thinking on, on how those questions were playing out, at least in the first part of the series? Um, I enjoyed all the questions. I didn't like any of the answers. Yeah. I, I think what was interesting is no one in the Federation ever. And I, I get see that's part of the problem is that it was just sort of like controlled by you know secret group of Romulans because I still think it was like they had their own agenda and their agenda was you know that look the sentient life are going to be the death of us all but and that's why that's why we didn't get a chance to have like the real the real question at hand which you know how stupid would it be if one incident like this happens and they and they actually did put a synth ban because they're androids. These weren't even like particularly, you know, intelligent androids. Right. They could do menial tasks. Someone had the question is, or the the obvious thing is, someone had to put them up to this. Someone had yeah. to program this inside of them. Any, you know, intelligent person could could say, "Hey, Bruce, how how likely is that?" And he would be like, "That's not likely at all." Like right. the, <laughs> they're. They're drones. They're nothing. Well, I think there's still a, a, a valid story to be told there. The, the uh, not not that that all the parallels are there, but I mean, this is very much the uh, the nine eleven type of storyline where uh, you know yeah. you, you had a, a people that attacked, and now um, all of the members of the Federation hate those people that right. attacked, regardless of whether they were involved or whatever. Anyone that resembles that. The people that well, were responsible for this attack, you know. As far as that is concerned, Enterprise did it better with the Sulaban. But, uh, you know, this in, in this situation, these aren't even really synthetic life. Like, the guys who did – or the the androids who did this uh, with the Mars station, they were 
fancy robots. They weren't androids. They weren't synthetic yeah. life. Not for real. Yeah, they they say that even. And, and like, I kind of hate, I just hated that whole thing. Because then it, it basically makes the entire synth ban yeah. not matter until we find out there's a race of yeah. people on this planet who are actively ready to destroy us. <laughs> and I'm like, so, and I'm confused by the Federation because I'm like, okay, so you are going to ban physical synthetic life. But keep all the holograms. Yeah. All the holograms who have caused way more problems over the course of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm um when my my partner and I just moved and so we were we had TNG on as kind of our like in the background um TV while we're packing boxes and stuff. In part because it's enjoyable and we've seen it before, and also because it's not really that subtle a TV show in the first few seasons, so you can mm-hmm. miss some parts and still know what's going on. Um, but yeah, we're, you know, we're remarking how the first time the holodeck is introduced in a real way, you know, we get Dixon Hill and then immediately problems start happening with it. Um, yeah. but, but I like what you're saying there because the, the yeah, the way, the way they, the synths were presented here as kind of like mindless robots, the ban on them is almost like a form of gun control because it's mm-hmm. like saying like these things are tools and if the wrong person gets control of them, the tools can do too much damage. So we're going to ban them. And I feel like this is just my whole problem with the season is the lack of agency because the story I was really excited about was one where the synths were more like data, not entirely, but you know, that they had their own minds and they had their own motivations and were able to, um, you know, kind of say, wait a minute, what if we don't want to do this dangerous work that the humans are asking us yeah. to do? What if we, and I, I you know, I, I think it could be such an, especially like, I would imagine to a group like that, Data would be such a hero, you know, and the yeah. memory and, and the idea of like all of them doing this in the name of da- like, what if a story where like, you know, someone started proselytizing about Data standing up to Maddox in measure of a man and, mm-hmm. and saying like, so we should, you know, throw off our human overlords in the name of Data um, and Picard being forced to confront like, he knows Data would never want this kind of violence. And how does he, how does he deal with that? Mm-hmm. Now we're just yeah. rewriting the show entirely, but that would have been such a most interesting fine. question. They they gave us this tease with having they announced Bruce Maddox is going to be in the show, and so the and then they show us this like race like of an android, arm, yeah. an army of androids in a closet, and you're like, oh Absolutely. man, that's, that's the, what they're doing. The entire the entire episode measure of man the whole crux is we don't want to create an army of beings to enslave. And then they do it, and that is never even addressed. Like, that is not an issue on this show, and that is the huge wasted potential. Absolutely. Something else I'm just realizing, it's kind of a plot hole to me about about the holograms. They say in an earlier – in an early part of the season, uh, they talk about how uh, Romulan ships don't have any complex AIs, like including Mm -hmm. on the ship. Like, they don't really have an AI that runs the ship. Um, because of their fear of these um, synthetic life. But the, why would they fight so hard to destroy the androids and not mind that their ships like Rios is running around with tons of holograms controlling the ship? Not even right. that. We have we have a hologram in charge of that storage facility, and st- and yeah. in charge of that uh, Starfleet. But I tell you why. Because even the secret government agents know you can't take away the people's photons. If you take away the people's <laughs> photons, suddenly they can't have sex with anybody <laughs> they want. 
and there will be riots in the streets. <laughs> g- g- give them photonic bread and circuses. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know what? That, that's actually really. I, I was mostly joking, but you're right. Like that is their form of television. They have you know hollow novels and it's, stuff. It's more like brothels and circuses, but yeah. Yeah, well, you know, bread, <laughs> oh, brothels, that, same thing. I mean, and that, that, we, we could do an entire episode on the uh, ethics of, of holographic situations, especially because I mean, that, that's – and I think DS9 gets into this a little bit. It's sort of the um, – but it's a similar question to something like Altered Carbon Raises or um, Westworld Raises, which is another favorite show of mine. But it's this idea of if I give you the opportunity to live out your darkest, like most – awful like you shouldn't do this in the real world but i give you the chance to to live that out in a setting with holographic or robotic people and so it doesn't count is that good is it good or bad for your psyche yeah it's a good question i heard you guys talk about that on on the ai episode last week and yeah i don't know i'd have to hear research on it and i'm sure there's some sort of research on some type of you know uh psychological intervention like that like where you either uh, kind of like what we see in Altered Carbon, where where she fights um, uh, to, to explain to Dave, someone is uh, violently attacked. So the way they 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 help them psychologically is to get, teach them to fight, like and and have them yeah. learn to fight and box, and like that's one of the ways they work through their right. their issue. Yeah, I don't know if that's better or if that's something yeah. that's that's actually pushing them in a violent direction that's worse for them. Yeah. Now you know when we were talking about synthetic life at the beginning of the series. I was excited to broach the topic of holograms and how they, they relate to all of this. And like like you probably heard on our show, we thought the doctor was probably going to be in charge of, of everything. Yeah. Like he was going to be the big bad guy because photons be free. Yeah, he wrote a hollow novel <laughs> photons called Photons be free. be free. Yeah. I've often wondered, you know, when you have a situation, they had an episode where Moriarty gained sentience. Like he was like – this I, I know this isn't real. <laughs> right. um, we have people like Vic Fontaine, and you know, for all of the great things in Deep, Deep Space Nine, I don't feel like they ever really, uh, they never really went into like, hey, you know how we keep erasing all of these like female, uh, <laughs> these female holograms in in Quark's Hollow Suite, and then like making them have sex with all these different people. Is that rape? Is that, you know, prostitution? Yeah, what is this? Do they feel anything? Do they remember anything? Vic does. Once Vic was like left on all the time, he should have been an advocate for, for photonic life. Yeah. I would be way more interested to find out how they tie in with the synthetic life ban and why they weren't chosen uh, to be shut down. Maybe they, the Federation relies too heavily on them. Yeah. Um, and the androids are still not there yet. And they were an easy target. They're also yeah. easier to control. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, it's you easier can turn to turn them off. Yeah. You can easily turn all the hollow emitters off. I mean, who knows? Maybe part of the synth ban was they built in fail safes to be able to cut off any hollow emitter at any time. I'd love to hear that story of how the doctor yeah. with his mobile emitter was treated after the, the synth ban. We talked about it on our podcast, so I won't yeah, retread that over and over, but man, I, I, I want to know how he dealt with this, but we don't get I, that story. I, I have always felt, and I, I will grant you, um, Voyager is, is I think, my favorite of the, the Star Trek TV shows. And, and I will say that because 
Um, granted, I watched all of it immediately after major surgery on my leg when I was high on morphine. So I might have been somewhat affected by these things. Oh, that makes sense. But, but I do feel like it did it the way it explored these questions of holographic life, especially with the doctor, but also just some of the things it did in the holodeck. Um, and I think I mentioned this on a, a, the, the AI episode, but I'll just say it again briefly. The episode in which um, they're all sort of spending time in this mythical Irish town and Janeway mm-hmm. is kind of dating a guy in that. But when she finds like there are things about him that annoy her, instead of going through the things that people have to do in relationships of trying to figure out how to mediate that, she just says, you know, computer, can you turn his laugh down a few degrees or can you, you know, change this part of his subroutine? Um and to me, that that that's kind of a very similar issue to what we're talking about that we wanted to see here, because that's all about saying, like, <laughs> these holograms or these people, these androids, only exist for us. And so we get to change them and alter them, you know, exactly as we want them to be. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's one thing I would have loved to see them explore more here. You mean there was something thoughtless on Star Trek and Janeway was involved? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's I not Voyager's gonna, not like, the perfect show, and the Kazon were terrible. And I'll agree with all. And Neelix is. I, I probably have the romanticized uh, vision of of Voyager because in in my version, Neelix never appears. Um, <laughs> so, oh, like, how, how did you manage that? <laughs> I kind of want now someone to do the fan like the, you know how someone did the Phantom edit of the Phantom mm-hmm. Menace where they cut out Jar Jar Binks entirely. I want someone to do that to Voyager, maybe in a couple episodes, and just cut out Neelix entirely. <laughs> I think Neelix is like my least favorite character on Voyager, and somehow I have like three action figures of him. <laughs> and I'm like, how did that happen? <laughs> well, and let, let's go to one more question about androids, and then kind of maybe uh, wrap up with one or two last questions. And, and Dave, I know you brought this one up. Um, the oh. question of da- Data's decision to die. Um, what what to you is kind of interesting about that that decision he makes there? I get that he wants to he has died and he made the decision to die. I'm, I'm curious, does, does this version of data that was basically, I would assume that was, he was extracted from B4. Mm-hmm. Right. So he had not made the decision to die yet. So he hadn't like let that set in. Well, he has had 30 years to like, he, he's been told about it. I think they talk about he's, it. Yeah. He's been told about it. So one, you know, he's a copy of data. He's not data. But he's still got a lot to to offer the universe. Like there's a whole a whole raft of androids that need guidance. Right. And he has been an android and living among humans and and, and uh, organic life for all these years. You know, he could offer a lot of guidance. He could offer, you know, a helping hand. He's still, you know, smart as crap. Got a ton of experience. Um, and I think what, what we're dealing with here is we were robbed of a logical decision from the character because mm. the actor doesn't remember the canon of the show and doesn't remember that Data has an aging chip. That was mentioned in, in the episode with his uh, synthetic mother. In season seven. Is that a problem with the actor or with the writers? That's both. That is absolutely both. Mm-hmm. And it is infuriating. But <laughs> Yeah, David's you know, really frustrated with that because they have all these conversations about how they need to get him back to looking like he did in Nemesis or like he did in TNG. And like 
on the show, yeah. he talks about how he has an aging chip. So yeah, and not only that, Brent Spiner gives any number of interviews a week where he's just like, it was just really important that we like take care of data and give him some closure because you know it's just not realistic to keep playing him. I'm not, I can't keep looking the same, and I'm like, you are an idiot. <laughs> they like. They used one line to fix this entire problem and yeah. explain why you, Lore, your mother, all of you age, you have an aging chip. Does it sound stupid? Absolutely, it sounds stupid. <laughs> Does it work for the canon? Absolutely, it works for the canon. It's no, it's no, it's no more stupid than time crystal. Yeah, you know, you, you, you know, it's like, it's, it's like in Firefly when Wash says, you know. That sounds like something from science fiction. Yeah, you live on a spaceship, dear. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get you. I, I think I have a little more sympathy for him because of um, both actors and writers. I like. I, I wish they'd kind of been more more honest to the canon, but I think there's a couple of canon breaks. I understand if I if I I, mm. I still remember someone commenting that they have the wrong model of a starship at one point. I don't remember details about that. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, but, well, but I, I I do think though that. Um, <laughs> And I think you're right. There's a lot of ways in which um, Data might have made the other choice. But I do think that actually Data choosing this is kind of canon because what he's basically cho- – like, first of all, I, I am a kind of generally on the side of euthanasia and, like, the idea that if someone wants to die, they get to die no matter what yeah. sort of benefit they bring to others. Mm-hmm. But I also think it, it fits with Data because basically what he's saying here is, yes, I could be of benefit to others – if I kept living, but I don't want to, I want to die. And so that's what should matter. And in measure of a man going all the way back to that, he kind of was faced with a mirror situation where basically if Maddox is correct, there could be incredible benefit to humankind, to, to all sentient life um, and maybe future robotic life by studying data, but he might have to die for that to happen. And, and data's thought is that, my own will to live should supersede the benefit that could happen to others of my continued existence. And, and so I like to hear it's the exact flip, flip side of it. It's now it's that my desire to die should supersede my, my benefit to other existence. So I, I guess to me in that regard, it feel, feels very canonical though. I agree with you. They screwed up the aging chip stuff. Um, does that, does that connection feel right? Or do you see it differently? I somewhat feel like it is like, I would have liked to have known or, or heard from data more of a reason why he wanted to die. Like yeah. if he had to stay in that mind space and that, in that like unreality, then sure, I get it. Um, if he, in fact though had, you know, they could make a, uh, a, a golem for him. Right. And, you know, and they could have had him played by a different actor. They could have had the, the golem age as they have Picard age. And then Brent Spiner could look human. He's the most human he's ever been. Data could, could have been more like, and he's even talking about coming back as this, as soon's real son. So I'm like, this is stupid. Yeah. yeah. You could have literally just come back as data as an aging person data. That's the biggest problem for me is the, when you talk about like his canonical decisions, his entire driving force in all of the show was to be more human. And mm-hmm. so for me, it would have been a much better end to his character if he had made a decision that put him in a body where he could actually 
have all the feelings and sensations and emotions of a human because they have this new type of Android that he could have easily been downloaded into. They had a golem sit sitting there. The writers could have easily written in two golems, one for, they could have been one for Sung and one for Maddox and then instead use it for Picard and data. And maybe, you know, they may, like you said, maybe it's, maybe it's Sung's body was already programmed. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. so you just yeah. put, put him in an, a, a regularly aged Brent Spiner body and have him back as data. I, I, yeah. I can see that. I, I think certainly, Dave, the point you make of that, either way, we have to headcanon what Data wanted because the show just didn't give us that. I mean, that could have been an entire episode is, you know, people coming to Data and talking about how much benefit he could have and seeing Data really wrestle with that, but also the the, the wanting to die, the wanting to be unplugged. I it, it When it was just sort of thrown in as his like, oh, by the way, Picard, can you do this? Let's talk about it for 30 seconds. That yeah. that felt cheap. That that felt unfair to the character and to Brent Spiner because it felt like this is such a massive character move for the character, and it's given even less weight and less attention than you know, uh, like seven seven seven's character yeah. is getting. And I, ironically, they say that the showrunners and Spiner have said that they did this to give closure to the data character, better closure than what Nemesis had, but. What we really got was more closure for Picard, not for anyone else, not for any of the other characters, and certainly not for the fans, because we do have to headcanon why Data would want to die, other than the fact that dying is an essential human thing. Well, guess what, buddy? If you were put into a golem, you would still die. They still let Picard, they they gave Picard a certain amount of years, and then his body would deteriorate and he would die. You would still have the human experience, and we would still have an aging Brent Spiner in the show who didn't have to wear a lick of, you know, makeup. Well, he would, but not that kind of makeup. Um. (laughs) There is a cynical part of me that wonders if any part of this is the writers or even Brent Spiner saying, yes, Data got this, you know, emotional death scene in a movie that most people think is terrible and quite a lot of people have never watched. Let's try it again in a better format. Um, I hope and that's I not think the case. Nemesis was better. Yeah, me too. I think that his death in Nemesis was better. But I'm saying, I wonder if that was the thought of like wanting to try it that way. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think know, you're like, wrong. Yeah, they just failed. Well, I don't want to keep us <laughs> too long, but so let's let's go to one other question that I know we had, which is um, uh, and her character actually kind of raises a whole bunch of questions. Um, and I'm trying to stall while I find where I have the character's name written Girardi. down. Girardi. You're talking about Girardi, Girardi. thank you. Uh, that, I knew mm-hmm. that all along. Um, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, so Girardi's character goes on quite an – I wouldn't even say an ethical arc. It's sort of an ethical pinball machine because uh, she's bouncing all over the place. But uh, and, and talk about a, uh, a whole bunch of different perspectives on agency. Is she though? I don't know if she's bouncing a lot. Well, so, so yeah, let's talk about her. What, what's your take on her character and the arc she takes? I mean, she's fascinated with AIs, and then this per- Picard comes to her, and then bef- before we ever see the second time, the first time she's just an exposition dump. She, she's a she's a very friendly exposition dump, and then every moment after that, she's basically fighting the AIs, like the rest of the show. Yeah, you know, she's she's doing mm-hmm. it in secret, um, but she's just, just against the AIs, and even when then she again convinces Sung and the androids that she wants to be there and save them, but still, that's just a trick. Like she's just deceptive. Uh, it's just funny because she's so sweet and she's played by Allison Pill, and it's so nice to see her every week. But like, <laughs> she's very deceptive in the show, and it makes you see, I, trust her. I don't almost. think she's. Well, no, what makes you trust her is not that she's deceptive because she wasn't good at being deceptive. Like, oh, I disagree. They did a good. Jo- when you go back and look at it, you could see 
how eaten up she is by her deceptions, by like what she's got to say and what she's got to do and what she knows what she ultimately has to do. Um, they have these little ticks like, and she does a great job with it. Uh, she has these little like physical ticks that you can kind of see and you kind of think like, Oh, she's just nervous about cause she's never been really off world. She's never done anything. No man, she's eaten up. She, she knows what she's got to do and she doesn't want to do it. Yeah. That's, that's all great in hindsight, but I don't think that's very visible from the, from the beginning. Uh, I think it's no, it's not visible from the beginning. You know, something's wrong with her. Something's not quite up to snuff, but once you know what it is, you're like, they did a good job with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, I, I didn't, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. I just think that she's, she's very deceptive throughout the show. Like she's very deceives kind of everyone that she's on their side at any point, except for she's just trying to save, save the universe mm-hmm. because there's some crazy thing in her head telling her to. She's effectively a Jat Vash, like kind of, uh, where, where they came from, I guess. Well, so let me ask you this. Do you think she has agency in killing Maddox? <clears throat> It's hard to know. Yeah, it's, uh, it feels like she is a. It feels like she's a pawn. Like she feels like she had to do it. I think she she did have a certain amount of agency because she saw she had a thing in her head, and even though she desperately didn't want to kill him, she felt like she had to. Right. But you know, then again, you could probably argue that uh, Admiral O st- put stuck that action in her head and made her follow through with it. Uh, and that's, uh, I, I'm interested to see where they'll go with that and how they'll argue that in the next season. I hope that it's not just a, oh yeah, here's a one liner to, to explain why she's not in jail now. Yeah. I'd like yeah. to see the trial of Girardi. Yeah. Michael Shaban says that, you know, we have, she hasn't had a chance to turn herself in yet. He says they will definitely dive into to all of that mm-hmm. when, when the next season comes about. So yeah. I'm, I'm really curious to see how they decide that it is going to play out. I think me too, because I, I really liked the direction her character went. And I, I liked the idea that she was, that she did have some agency in killing him. And then it was a, you know, you could say she was very, mani- like, to me, I want her to have been manipulated, not mind controlled, because then she mm-hmm. does have to have some moral weight in what she's doing. And the degree to which she was kind of forgiven and forgotten at the end felt very off to me. Um, and, and, and certainly her betraying the androids at the very end, there was nothing surprising to me about that. I'm not a big fan of when shows leave things so ambiguous that you can – that it makes it okay for them to just operate with impunity. Like yeah. everyone can forgive her. Like that we can we can have a plot line where she feels regretful because you think maybe she had agency, but everyone can forgive her because maybe she didn't. <laughs> it's like yeah. – mm, I'd rather you go down on one side or the other. Either she did or didn't, and then she either should be – Maybe she feels the weight of it, but she has to be like learn to forgive herself because it's not something she really did, or she fully had agency and she did it, and she's got to deal with that. And those are two very different stories. And I feel like they're kind of wanting us to fall in the middle, and I'm I'm worried they're not going to clarify that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of like how like Voyager, like the Maquis crew members were worried at the end of the seven years when they were getting close that you know they were going to be thrown in prison for being Maquis. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember if they even went into that because they got all lost lost in the time traveling Janeway Borg of it all. But uh, I think there's like one line about them being given a mass pardon, but I don't think there's anything more beyond that. Which would have been it, it's way more interesting if they got back and been like, "Welcome back! You're going to jail, Belana." 
Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a much better story. Or or like they find out, they get back and they find out some of their actions as Maquis. Like maybe Balana had smuggled some weapons to someone and oh, it actually caused a lot so of damage good. to someone, you know? Like these are the kind of plot lines I want. They should have gotten back a year, uh, the season before the ending. Maybe right. that's why Seven is off with the Fenris Rangers, because, you know, she finally gets in love with Chakotay, they get married, and then he gets arrested, thrown in jail immediately afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that like that. Um, I, I will say, yeah, I, I, I liked a lot about, um, uh, Gerardi's plot line. I thought some of it was frustrating because it, it, it felt like a lot of this show, they like would creep up to an edge and then back away, but instead of taking that jump. And I think that's, mm-hmm. it almost was so much of a tease. I will say there was one thing that I loved because it dealt with what has always been one of my biggest frustrations with Star Trek, which is that Star Trek has had this idea throughout the entire thing that we cannot ever have an actual serious understanding of how romance works anywhere in the Federation. Like it is always you kiss someone once, which means you are now totally in love with them and have to deal with the consequences of being, you know, completely in love with each other. And so to have Gerardi basically use another character for sex because she needs to, you know, not feel what she's feeling which is a, you know, not admirable, but incredibly human emotion and a reason why a lot of people turn to either drinking or sex or some other escape. Um, I loved that because it was, it was, mm-hmm. it was, I remember I watched Battlestar Galactica and, and I, and I love so much about Star Trek, but the, one of the first episodes of Battlestar Galactica, I thought, wait, people can have human emotions about sex in space. This is allowed. <laughs> and so I just, I did love seeing Star Trek get on board that train of, you know, it can be more complicated than either I don't admit I like you or we're totally in love with each other. Which you know what would have been more interesting for them to do? What's that? <laughs> if she had started having sex with the hospitality uh, hologram. <laughs> yeah, going there. And because in my head, in the 24th century, with these, almost the 25th now, with these highly evolved human beings, uh, when they have moments like that, they, they're self-aware enough to go like, oh, I just need to feel something else. Let's not drag another person's feelings into this. We're going to have sex with a hologram. So right. she would go to the holo- the hospitality hologram, who looks just like Rios, and <laughs> would uh, you know avail herself to him. And then slowly start to, be- start to get emotions, feelings for Rios oh, wow. because of what she's doing with the hologram. That's that's some Barkley shit, man. <laughs> and if you think about if you care, think about like the archetype that is totally Gerardi. Like, oh, of course. I think it would be it would have been really interesting for her to like be slowly, secretly uh, developing feelings for Rios outside of the sex with the hologram, just because of who he is. But then also like start going from using the hologram for just to feel something else to using the hologram to exercise those feelings for Rios because he looks like Rios and maybe even the hologram, the hospitality hologram starts to realize what's going on and is like offended by that. Mm -hmm. I I personally like the messy emotions of the humans getting together. I think that's good for the show. And I I think there's, there's more to it than when you just say she wants to feel something else and she's just going to go to a hospitality hologram or a hologram in general. Uh, I think there's more to when you want to feel something else, sometimes what you want to feel is valued and that probably requires Mm -hmm. it to be a thing that has 
as agency and choice, a, a person with a person with agency choosing to have sex with you, not just a <laughs> hospitality program. But yes and no, because lots of people go to strip clubs because they develop what they think of as relationships with the, the sex workers mm-hmm. there. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, that's the person who cares for me. A lot of people can kind of fool themselves to the point of like thinking this is a serious relationship and isn't about the $20 I'm passing them every, every dance. And well, that, that's, know, my, that's, and, that's my point. Exactly. I think you're, you're supporting my point, not disagreeing with it, though. It's like they want they go there because they want it to be, feel like it's more. You know what I mean? I, I'm just saying that I think some a lot of people can't, but some people can fool themselves. And I guess I'm saying like I feel like a lot of people, you're right, would go to a strip club or go to a hologram and say this isn't the same thing. But I think Girardi is in that camp of people who could fool themselves, who could mm-hmm. let themselves kind of get that like fan crush obsession. Yeah, may, maybe, maybe. Well, I feel like with with a hologram, it's different though. With the fact that the, she knows it's uh, an android or like a synthetic life that has is programmed to do a certain thing. At least we think we don't know how how in, intelligent these AIs are. I like my idea because it plays into like the overall themes of the series and where we were hoping it was going anyway. Yeah, sure. That's also true. That's true. Yeah, if they're if they're playing with the AI of it all, I, I'm I'm down. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially because it kind of it, it, to take us back to the conversation we were having about like, you know, whether using the holodecks to live out sort of, you know, things that you maybe shouldn't be living out in, in the real world. It, it gets back to the whole question of is it healthy or not? You know, is this harm reduction or is this just, you know, enabling problematic thoughts? Um, I feel like the way you could look at a hologram in the best possible light in that regard is kind of the equivalent of methadone, you know? The, the whole concept of methadone is like we can't break you of your heroin addiction so we can give you something that feeds your addiction but isn't dangerous in the same way. Um, and hopefully we'll eventually wean you off of it. But but it's it's not it's, – it's aimed at sort of like saying you have this need and we're going to help you meet that need in a safe way. And and so I'm kind of interested in this idea of like that holograms or hollow suites or with like can be a sort of like, yeah, you want to do this thing and it's not really great. We don't want you to do that thing but – if if we don't give you some outlet to do that thing, you might do it and terrible things can happen. Flip Flight, you kind of do that in the holodeck. Um, and Star Trek never went there because that's pretty dark. But I, I've always sort of thought of that as the, you know, the the, the women in, in the Quark's, um, you know, hollow suite things are not always probably fully consenting or, or you know, the, all, all the problems that that can raise. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Dave. I think that could have been a, a really interesting to, to, thing to explore with Gerardi's character. And also just a lot of fun when the real Rios confronts her. And now I'm just thinking of the Federation and Starfleet as Seven of Nine's methadone to the Borg and how she wasn't weaned properly. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm also just because like I am I have friends who are fanfic writers and, and some of them I think are, are, are they're fantastic writers. But it, but I've certainly known some who I think even they would admit they get pretty lost in the fantasy of it sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And like I have one person who I know who who they've intentionally pulled back somewhat on this in part because he said he got to a point where he couldn't remember what a character had actually said canonically versus what a character had said in his fan fiction writings, Um, (laughs) which I thought was such an interesting, like, yeah, like, and I think that's, it's true of any fantasy, you know, like I, you know, in the same way that we were talking about how people have 20 years of memories of Picard. That's not actually what Picard was. Um, And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I remember Voyager without Neelix because I remember the good parts. Um, we, we've had, we've had a lot to talk about, a lot to say. Um, we're coming up on the, um, 
uh, two-hour mark, so I don't want to go too much longer. Is there any kind of last thoughts either of you all have that you want to um, throw in here? Any last things you wanted to cover? I have nothing. I think we've 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 exhaustively discussed the <laughs> okay. card series yep. and its ethics. I, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I will talk about this for eight um, hours, but yeah, we, yeah. we probably we've probably reached the end. Yeah, of this one. Yeah, let's do it again next time. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe if we just come up with a whole lot more, like something about Rafi or. Uh, oh yeah. So you don't stop, stop, guy. stop mentioning characters because I'm going to have a lot more to say, and we are almost at two I hours. Know. <laughs> well, or, hopefully, you know, when Elmore's there is a ethical codes. Uh, <laughs> so, so uh, stop uh, it, uh, stop it, Dave. Dave, Dave, it, it's like you have a, a real ethical mind um, that you no. want to bring to these discussions. <laughs> I don't. Um, I, I will argue with you on that, but but I but I will say um, this has been a fantastic conversation, and yeah, it. If and when we get a season two, I'd love to have you back on to discuss kind of where we left some of these characters and what we're hoping to see from them in season two. Um, but thank you both. Let me give each of you a chance to kind of just, uh, um, you know, uh, say goodbye and, and and tell us a little bit more about where to find your stuff. Um, Dave, you want to go first? Uh, sure. Um, I'm David C. Robertson. You can find me on the DC On Screen podcast, dconscreen.com. You can find... Uh, you can find me on the Star Trek Ucast.com. That's uh, the Star Trek Universe podcast I do with Matt, um, or Matthew Carroll, <laughs> who is uh, currently That's on this me. podcast. That's me. I'm me. <laughs> and uh, I do the Breaking Bond podcast with my wife. We're, ta- we're watching all of the James Bond movies, uh, or really all the James Bond uh, uh live action and possibly animated uh, <laughs> iterations. Uh, in chronological order, um, uh, our our pastor just uh, made me aware of a 1964 comedy sketch that Roger Moore did, where he played James Bond, a very uh, paranoid James Bond, uh, uh, trying to vacation uh, t- like ten years before he was James Bond on the movies. So um, we're going to talk about that. Nice and. Uh, and then, you know, I, I haven't done them in years, but I've got a bunch of comedy sketches over on maladjusted.tv. So, Sweet. you know, a lot of, a bunch of, lot, bleh, bunch of stuff. Maladjusted Media is what that's going to be, is starting to be called now. So. <laughs> I like it. Neat. And, and uh, Mr. Carroll, what about yourself? <clears throat> uh, well, uh, yeah, I, uh, like I said earlier, I'm Star Trek UCast, Star Trek Universe Podcast, Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, but really just check out uh, strandedpanda.com. Uh, I, I really, we're trying to do an update to the website this week where we're going to have everybody have their own page that shows all the shows they're on. So we'll all have all our shows in one place where we can be like, here, here's the guy and here's all his shows. And then all on each of the shows, it shows all the guys on those shows. And, you know, you really oh, get, awesome. a, get a place where we can actually point <clears throat> people to. Uh, that they can really see a cross reference of all of our work. Um, Are you going to do like Kurt Vonnegut and like give the size, the penis sizes and everything when you introduce a a, a guy? Oh yeah, for uh, sure. Excuse me, for sure. Um, <laughs> no, no one told man. me this part when I signed up to be part of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So penis size aside, uh, that's yeah, that's where you can find us. StrandedPanda.com. It's an unfortunate reminder that we have far too many only male hosts on the Stranded Panda Podcast Network at the moment. Um, or Pete is having people, not not necessarily male. But yeah, anyway, um, thank you guys both so much. Um, and for everyone else, yeah, um, please, uh, we, we have these conversations. Uh, as you heard, Matt and uh, Dave have been watching the show because they love talking to, to each other about it. I, I watch it because I love talking to my mother about it. 
we all do these podcasts because we love talking about it. Um, we like hearing our own voices, but I think more than anything, I know I've heard both Dave and Matt talk about this yourselves. We love to hear from you, the fans. So please tell us what you think. Uh, I'd love to hear your ethical thoughts or just thoughts in general on Picard. You can find us on um, Facebook and Twitter uh, at Superhero Ethics. You can also email us at superheroethics at gmail.com. All those links will be in the show notes, as well as all the links that um, Dave and Matt both talked about. All that's going to be in the show notes as great ways to find um, all the great content that's out there. Um, I hope everyone's staying safe. Uh, to those who are staying home, I hope that we're giving you some entertainment. To those of you who are out doing essential work, thank you for what you're doing. And we hope this uh, gives a little smile to your face while you're doing that work or while you're driving to and from. Stay safe, everybody, and uh, have a great day.